Let, let's jump into the message this morning. I'll just tell you in advance, this is not one of these two-mile-deep message, real simple message this morning, very straightforward today. We've been doing a teaching series called Vantage Point, and each week leading up to Easter, we've been looking just specifically at the scene of Jesus' life that happens at the crucifixion, okay, what happens leading up to the cross. And uh, what we're doing is kind of pretending as though it's, imagining as though it's, it's a film crew looking at it through the eyes of different people that were there. And each week we've been taking one of the people who are actually at the cross and looking at this scene through their eyes and trying to figure out how we can take some meaning from that. The first week we talked about the centurion. We looked at it through his eyes. Last week we looked at it through the two criminals' eyes who hung on either side of Jesus. This week we'll look at it through the eyes of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and um, you know, it's probably initially for me this was the most intimidating character because there's a couple weaknesses I have here. I'm not a woman, nor do I ever plan to be one. Just put that out there for you. Um, I, I, I'm not a mother. Uh, nor do I ever plan to be one, you know, so it's a little bit difficult for me as a man to really fully put myself into this story. There's just some difficulties I have in assuming this role. But the first, like the first phrase of this verse is the one that just kind of jumped off the page and slapped me upside the head, and that's the one that really sunk into my heart this morning. Um, Let me read to you from John chapter 19, Verses 25 through 27 from the New Living Translation, it says this. And here's the phrase, standing near the cross. That's the phrase that jumped off the page at me. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother, Mary, okay, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. So there's four women standing there together. When Jesus, he's hanging on the cross at this point, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, who we believe to be John, He said to Mary, dear woman, looking at, now he's looking at John, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, and here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took Mary into his home. Quick question. This is an easy one. Have you ever had a bad day? Real bad day. Quick show of hands. Have you ever had a bad day? Okay. Those of you who haven't, I'm really upset at you right now because that's just not fair. (laughs) I've had some bad days. Let me go a step further. Have you ever had like a bad week? Like just a succession of consecutive bad days? What about a bad month? Some of us might even say, you know what, I just had a bad year. Might not have been this year. But there's been a year in my life, I just had a bad year. So I went through a divorce, I lost a loved one, I lost a job. Financial difficulties. Just... Everything that I owned broke and I needed to replace it. I just had a bad year. It happens. But our definition of a bad day changes over time. Like when you were six years old, what made a bad day? I see a couple heads shaking like nothing. I'm thinking like, but I do remember at six, there are some days I feel like I carried on like it was a bad day. I, you know, I don't know what made a bad day at six. Like I couldn't go outside and play. You know, I ate too much paste in first grade or... Um, wasn't allowed to have candy today. The snacks weren't good. My favorite cartoon wasn't on. My mom made me do terrible chores, like put on my socks, you know. Like at six, I guess I had some bad days, but like looking back at it, those weren't really all that bad, were they? I wish I could go back to six sometimes when life was simple and great and all I had to do was play and eat paste. It was great. At 16, what made a bad day? A little bit different, huh? 16... Man, if I got a bad score in a test that I had to take home to mom and dad, that, wasn't, that was a bad day. 16, if the girl that I liked wasn't paying attention to me that day, it was a bad day. 
If I had a bad day at practice, if I was having issues with my parents, they wouldn't give me the money that I wanted them to give me, or they wouldn't let me go do what I wanted to do. That made a bad day. And I, now I look back and I'm like, that's not that bad. But at the time, it seemed like it was the end of the world. Of course, now in adulthood, what makes a bad day? Somebody you love dies, or somebody accuses you of something you didn't do. Someone treats you wrong. You have an unexpected financial crisis. There's a health emergency. Those are things I didn't even think about at age six, or really so much at age 16, but now in my adulthood, it makes a bad day. So we all have bad days, but our definition changes of how bad a day really is based on our specific life circumstances. Let me suggest something to you. The day that we just read about was a bad day for Mary. It was the worst possible day I think anybody could ever have. Put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment. Before she even gets to the scene we just read, someone had to wake her up that morning. At this point, she's a single mom. We believe that Joseph, her husband, was was dead at this point because we see him nowhere in the story. So we, we believe that he had passed away. She'd already buried her husband. And I just imagine there was this massive knock and pounding on the door that got her out of bed that morning. As she wipes the sleep out of her eyes, she goes to the door and someone says, have you heard what happened to Jesus? And Mary doesn't think Jesus my Savior. She thinks Mary, my first son. She says, no, I haven't heard what happened. Throw something on, Mary. You've got to come right now. Well, wait, before I throw something on, what happened to my son? Well, he was arrested last night. You haven't heard? I haven't heard. Tell me what happened. Mary, you probably just need to come and see for yourself. I'm not leaving until you tell me what happened to my son. Well, he was arrested, and he, he was beaten pretty severely. Well, when is his trial going to be? Just tell me when his trial is. I'll go to his trial. Mary, his trial already happened. He was... He was framed for something he didn't do. They fabricated witnesses. They found a judge to hear his case. Mary, you just need to get dressed. You need to come. Hurry, there's really not much time. Much time before what? I don't understand. Mary, they sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. And right now, your son is being executed. Can you imagine, as a parent, the last time you see your kid, they're happy, they're smiling, they're themselves. The next word you hear about them is that they're being executed. As you speak. So she hurries to the cross. And guess what she sees? She sees her son beaten beyond recognition. Flesh hanging off of him. People mocking him. Spitting at him. Her son. The one who saw his first steps. The one who brought him into the world. The one who raised him. This is a bad day. It's the worst possible day. But the phrase of that verse that jumps off the page at me is where we find Mary in the worst possible day, standing near the cross. You know, when Mary got the news that morning, however it happened, she could have just slammed the door and denied it. She could have just gone back to to bed and pulled the cover over her head, and none of us would have blamed her because we've all done that. You have those days where it's just so bad, you just don't even want to leave. It paralyzes you. She didn't do that. She didn't go downtown and make herself vulnerable to a man and just pour herself out to him and let him take advantage of her. She didn't turn to the bottle. She didn't throw a temper tantrum. In her darkest hour, she stood near the cross. And I think that's the part of the story that speaks most to me. Where do I go? Where would you find me in my darkest hour? 
when life deals me the most difficult circumstances, when people do me wrong, would you find me near the cross? Would you find me in some other way? So there's a little bit about Mary. There's a little bit about what Mary did and where she stood that speaks to all of us. Number one in your notes, in Mary's most difficult hour, Jesus found her near his cross. It says in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother standing there, beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, Here's your son. Somehow the the blood clears from Jesus' eyes long enough and he opens his eyes wide enough to see there in front of him his mother. And in that moment when she's grieving, in fact, we don't hear, the Bible doesn't record anything Mary says. We don't even know she says a word the whole time that she's there. But Jesus speaks to her. And he says, Mom, look, look to your left. You see? You see John there? John's going to take care of you now. John's going to look after you. Because you see, Jesus was the oldest. It was his responsibility to take care of his mom because his dad was dead. And now that Jesus knew that he was, his time to leave the earth was there, he knew his mom would be left alone. And even in that moment, even when Jesus was standing there dying, even though Jesus had all this weight of the world on him, he still was able to look through that and act in compassion towards his mom. Say, Mom, look to your left. There's John. He's going to take care of you now. He's going to be like a son to you. He's going to do all the things for you that I've been doing up to this point, but now that I won't be here, he's going to take care of you now, Mom. Mom, this is going to be hard, but it's going to be all right. You see, I've got a plan here. And John, I need you to take care of my mom. I need you to look after her as if this was if this, this was your mom. And in this moment of excruciating agony for Jesus, he transcends through what he's going through and he speaks words of comfort to Mary. First thing she finds at the cross is words of comfort. She finds words of comfort from her son. And here's the amazing thing. Mary didn't go to the cross looking for answers. She didn't go to the cross. She didn't go to see Jesus that day saying, Jesus, before you die, I've got all these questions and issues. She went there just dealing with her profound grief. And he speaks the very words in her life that she needed to hear. I want to tell you something. Jesus is never too busy. He's never too preoccupied. He's never too weighed down with the bigger issues of the world to speak the words to you when you need them. He will speak the words of comfort into your heart and into your life if you will stay near the cross of Christ, even in your darkest hour, even in the most difficult things. In the moment when Mary's whole world fell apart, when she couldn't even muster the energy to say anything to Jesus, he still spoke words of comfort to her. I want to say something to you this morning. There's going to be times where you go through hell on earth. It's going to happen. Some of you might not have had that experience yet. But there will be things that you walk through on earth where you feel terribly alone. Where you feel paralyzed. Where you don't even have the energy to pray, to talk to anybody. Where you just feel completely raw and empty and all you can do is try and hold on until tomorrow. In those moments, Jesus will still meet you right where you're at. And speak the very words into your spirit, into your soul, into your life that you need to hear. If you'll stay near the cross, you'll find words of comfort there. The second thing Mary found at the cross was she found needed company near the cross. It says in verse 25, standing near the cross were were Jesus' mother Mary, but she also found her sister there, Mary, one of her friends there, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. She was there with her sister, with Mary Magdalene, and another woman. 
Sometimes when you have an especially difficult day, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I just want to go off and be by myself and I don't want to talk to anybody. But then there's other times when you just need some company. You just need, you need a friend. You need a family member. You need somebody that you trust to just be with you, to just be near you, to help you kind of make it through that bumpy patch, that season, that difficulty that you're in. And uh, we need to be with people. That's why God gave us each other. In the most difficult hour of her life, Mary went to the cross. And you know who she found when she went to the cross? She found other people who also went to the cross in their most difficult hour. She found John, who gave her support. She found her sister there to grieve with her. The other ladies were there too to just cry alongside of her. The Bible doesn't say whether or not they had a conversation. They were just there with Mary supporting her and one another during that time. On her worst day, she found people to walk her through it at the cross. Now, you might be at a really good place this morning. Life might be good for you today, and I pray that it is. But you know it's important for you to be near the cross even when life is good because when you're near the cross, there might be other people standing shoulder to shoulder with you who life isn't so good for them today. They might need, they might need to hear you singing along with worship because it lifts their spirit, even if you sing off tune. They might need you to be the one who moves three rows away from your seat and shake their hand and introduce yourself to them and hug their neck even if you don't know them this morning because that might be what they need. I've heard testimonies from people that come to Echo. I, I, one, one lady said to me one, uh, one week, she said, who is the young lady who, and she started describing the young lady in church, and then I said, oh, you mean such and such? And she said, yeah, I think that's her name. I said, I said well, why do you need to know who she is? She said, I've never met her before in my life, and I came in Sunday morning so discouraged. I'd had a horrible week. And then they came to that part where they say, turn around and shake someone's hand and tell them that you're happy that they're here. And this girl I've never met in my life walked the whole way from the back of that section right down to me, hugged my neck, told me she was glad to see me, walked back. She said, and that's exactly what I needed. She didn't even know me. So around the cross are people who are having great days and people who are having bad days. People who feel like they've got life by the tail and people who feel like life has them by the tail. We're all here this morning. And when you're up, friend, that's your day to keep your eyes open for those who aren't. Because guess what? Those roles might reverse at some point. I try to be the guy, you know, I try to be the first face that you see on Sunday mornings. I try and make sure that I'm up every Sunday morning, even if I'm not feeling that up. Even if I had a rough week, I try and set that temperature. I want to be that person that when you come here Sunday morning, you know, if I can just get here, you know, someone's going to greet me. They're going to be thrilled to see me here. And I'm, I'm trying. That's one of the things I love about being a pastor that I want to be able to give away to people. But, you know, then there are those occasions where I'm just like, Lord, I, could you send somebody my way today to hug my neck and pick me up? Because I'm not feeling it so much today. Sometimes you just need company. And can I say something else? When I'm really going through it and I need to be around a friend, I need to be around a friend to give me the answers. Sometimes I don't need them to say a word. I just want to be around somebody. You know? I could tell you in some of the darkest hours I walked through on the face of the earth, I could tell you exactly who was there. I could tell you. When I battled depression, when my marriage was falling apart, my wife and I were living in separate places, praying about whether God was going to put our relationship back together or what he was going to do. When my son was dying during delivery, when I was battling addiction, when I was, when I was battling clinical depression for three years, going to talk therapy three times a week, heavily medicated, trying to recover and get my life back together. Most of the people in my life disappeared from me, but I could tell you who was there. I don't remember a word any one of them said to me. 
I don't remember a prayer they prayed over me. I don't remember a single conversation we had. I just remember they were there for me. Sometimes words can be overrated. And we feel like we have to have the answer when someone's near something. You just don't. Sometimes just a hug. Or, hey, man, you want to go grab a pizza? Or, hey, you want to just come over and <laughs> just be together? Just hang out. Go do something. That's what we have each other for. That's what Mary found near the cross. She could have stayed home and dealt with it all by herself. She could have gone in the wrong direction. She went to the cross and found other people who were also at the cross to help her through it. The third thing that Mary found through the cross was, and this is a tough one, when she drew near the cross, Mary faced life's realities, but she did it near the cross. She did it near the cross. There's a, let me tell you, the cross was not a pleasant place. If you don't believe me, go back... Go to our podcast, go back two ago, and we talk about the centurion. I'm not going to go through all that again this morning. But we went through very specifically what Jesus looked like and what he experienced leading up to the cross. It was not a pleasant place. Probably not the place a mother should go to look at her son. But that's where she went. And as she stood before the cross, she had to deal with some very, very, very harsh realities. But she did it near the cross. You know some of the stuff that Mary had to deal with that morning that she had to look at? Life isn't fair. She had to deal with the fact that something was very, very, very unfair about her life in that moment. Because there was nothing fair about what was happening to her son. He was an innocent man. He didn't break any laws. He didn't do anybody wrong. All he did was love people and be kind to people and heal people. That's all that he did. And yet there he stood brutalized and massacred and hanging from his wrists while people spat at him and cursed him. She literally watched her son's last breath. She watched her son die at the hands of other people. There was nothing fair about that. But guys, life isn't fair. I would like to stand in front of you and tell you life is fair. Everybody will get the good that they deserve and the bad that they deserve. And life's fair. And when you do people right, they'll always do you right in return. And when you make the right call, people will honor that. I'd like to tell you that life just operates on this system of fairness. It doesn't. And when life is unfair, we start questioning God and questioning people. And usually when life starts getting very unfair to us very fast, we don't get the raise we deserve. We get looked over for somebody else. Someone played politics and you did it the right way and they get ahead. You ask someone for forgiveness, they spit in your face. You do the right thing. You take the high road and it gets you nowhere. The mean people get advanced and the nice people don't. The bad people flourish and the good people suffer loss. We tend to retract from the cross. We move away from Jesus into the self-imposed moral system of right and wrong and fair and unfair. But that's not the way that life is. And I would say this, thank God life is not bound by fairness. Because if it is, then Jesus wouldn't have died for me because that wasn't fair for him. There was nothing fair to Jesus. What did he get out of this? Death. That wasn't fair. You know what's fair? Phil goes to the cross. Phil dies for his sins. That's fair. But Jesus said, I'm not willing to bind anybody who wants to follow me by fairness. I will do what is unfair to extend grace and mercy to people who will come after me. I don't think we want fairness. But life isn't fair. And Mary had to deal with it, and she did it right from the cross. She had to deal with a couple other things, too. Life is filled with injustice. She had to deal with that right there at the cross. There's nothing just about it. He didn't get the right trial. He didn't get the right representation. If you read through the whole story, there was error after error after error in how Jesus was done leading up to the cross. She had to face up to that. And we have to face up to that too. Guys, life is filled with things that aren't just. 
and it isn't right. And I don't like it and you don't like it, but there's not a thing I can do to change it. It's just part of the reality of life that we have to face up to. But when you face up to that, does it make you doubt God? Do you retract from God? Or will you face up to those things standing near the cross? The other thing she learned is death is enormously painful. Enormously painful. I was 32 years old before somebody in my immediate family died. 32. I had pastored and overseen dozens of funerals. I had walked lots of people through grieving for the lost loved ones that they had. And then I remember at 32, my granddad died. And life changed for me just like that. An enormously painful experience for me. I wasn't expecting it to be so painful. And then over the next couple of years, I started losing more and more and more family members. And I really was not prepared for how difficult it was. But guys, that's the reality of death. For us as human beings, the greater you love somebody, the more pain you feel when, they, when you lose them. That's why a lot of people describe love as the most painful emotion. The more I love somebody and the more they love me, the more, more potential we have to cause hurt to each other. People I don't love don't cause me pain. The people I love the most can have potentially caused me the most pain. And she's learning death is enormously painful. Enormously painful. Some of you are walking through that right now. People close to you have passed on. And you might be saved and on your way to heaven, but that doesn't mean that death is not difficult. Death is extraordinarily difficult. Now, some of the pain is mitigated when we know that those people that that passed on are in a better place. They're They're in Christ's presence in heaven. But Mary was dealing with this reality. All of us will have to deal with it at some point. All of us will have to deal with with death. And it's enormously painful. And a lot of people, when it happens, they move away from the cross. But I found in my own life, whenever I walk through having to grieve for somebody that I loved, that I lost, it also makes me very vulnerable to Jesus to look into my life and say, you know, there might, this might be a good time for me to get some things in order in my own heart, in my own life. But she had to deal with all those realities right in front of the cross. The other thing she had to deal with is change is inevitable. Change is inevitable. Her whole life had changed that morning, just like that. Just like that. In a matter of a few hours, she went from being able to, to see her son and smile at him and look in his eyes to having to grieve for him as he died at the cross and watch him be taken down and carry him to the tomb. Some of us love change. Others of us hate it. I'm kind of, I kind of vacillate. If I like the change, I'm all for it. If I don't like it, I hate it. I like routine usually. But change is inevitable. I'd like to tell you that life won't change, but it does. We can put our heads in the sand and deny it, or we can say, Jesus, since life is going to change, help me through it. Jesus, I don't like death, and I don't like that I'm suffering loss, but Jesus, since it's happened, help me through it. Jesus, I don't like injustice, but help me to stay faithful to you even when I'm dealt injustice. Jesus, I like things to be fair, I think, but help me to respond graciously and mercifully even when I'm treated unfairly. Mary dealt with all of these realities near the cross. You and I will have to deal with all of them, whether you know Jesus or you don't. Those are four things you're going to have to deal with in life. Do you do it through the lens of Christ? Or do you do it through your own way of thinking? There's an invitation that Mary extends to all of us. That in your darkest hour when you're dealing with life's harshest realities, deal with them near the cross. So really, I just have a couple questions to ask you as we close this morning. it's, It's in your notes, number two. In life's most difficult times, where does Jesus find you? When things get tough for you, where does Jesus find you? I've noticed something in 15 years of pastoring. It's not a, a, it's not a broad brush. It happens all the time. It's not a law. It's just a trend. 
I do the best I can. And since our congregation is at the size here at Echo that it is now, it's a little easier for me. But every Sunday afternoon, literally right after I get home, we take Chase upstairs and try and get him calmed down from his morning of whatever it is that he's doing. He usually runs through about three or four of you. I'm sorry. Um, but I'll sit down there with a notepad and I'll write down the names of everybody that I can remember that was normally here that wasn't. Because I'm a pastor, I just can't click that part of me off. I'm always wondering, okay, I saw all these people, and I'm glad. But I also missed this person, that person, the other person. I write, I write down a list as quick as I can. And generally speaking, you know, there's a, there's a good reason. They were sick, they were busy, they were, you know, and, and it's fine. I just want to know that I missed them and that I noticed that they weren't here. But when I start seeing that same name over three, four, five, six weeks, that's when I start to get real concerned. Over 15 years of pastoring, here's what I see. The people that that are in church for a while, then they disappear. Usually when I can track them down, if they've been gone a month or more, it's because they're going through something difficult and their response is to pull away from church. Tough time at work, tough time in a relationship, tough time in their moral life or personal decisions. It seems to be the trend that the more difficult life gets, not for everybody, but there's a large group of people who say the more tough life gets, the more distance I'm going to put away between myself and church, myself and God, myself and prayer, myself and worship, myself and the Bible. And I'm not sure that's really the way that things should work. And I think we'd all amen that and agree to that. But I want you to turn the lens inward and say, is that really how you respond on your worst day? Do you go home and crack your Bible open and start praying about it? Or do you get on Facebook and blast anybody and anybody? You just need to yell at somebody. Do you take it out on the dog or your kids or your spouse? Or the wall. You throw the headphones on and immerse yourself in a songwriter who has your best interests at heart, knows exactly what you're going through. I'm being sarcastic. Where do you go? Where does Jesus find you? To whose words do you turn for comfort and understanding in your toughest times? Do you turn to the words of a musician? Be careful which musician you turn to. We're very vulnerable during those times. You jam your headphones on. Well, I'm angry, so I need my angry music. Well, all right. Is that therapy or is that aspirin? Is that going to make you better or just cover it over for a little while? There's healthy ways and unhealthy ways to deal with life's darkest hour. Well, where do you turn? Do you turn to a television program? You just had a rough day and you just need to veg out and, you know, turn on the TV. Let American Idol just minister to your soul. Let the Property Brothers just cure everything. I watch that show and I get a honeydew list a mile long. I stop watching those shows. Or I watch Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives at 11 o'clock at night and I go eat everything in the kitchen. I don't know what's wrong with me. You know. But where do you go? You need to know yourself. Do you go to your Facebook friends who don't know Jesus and just tell them how bad your day is? I would like to have a day in my life where I can just say what I want to say, just for one day. When these posts come on on Facebook sometimes, you know having such a difficult time getting everything done, don't know how I'm going to do it. Get off of Facebook and go do it. You know, that's what I want to say. Stop posting. Go do it. Um, that really came from a deep, pent-up place. I feel much better. I feel much better now. <laughs> that's probably why I shouldn't have one of those days. But where do you go? You can tell sometimes when people have a bad day because they just want to go on there and tell everybody all about it. And here's my question. How do you think about other people when they post like that? Do you respect them more? I don't. So don't be that person. Don't put it all out there and then regret it two hours later that you put it out there. Because once you put it out there, it's out there. Do you go to people in your life who live near the cross or do you go to people who don't? Do you go to Jesus himself? Who do you go to for words of comfort? 
Who do you go to and open yourself up to and say, I, I need some words, I need some advice, I need some information. Do you follow the example of Mary and are you found standing near the cross or do you go in a different direction? Second question, whose company do you seek for support? Who or what do you surround yourself with in your darkest hour? Do you seek out friends and associates who don't believe like you do? It's a roll of the dice. They might be really good friends, but they might not be able to speak into your spirit. They might be able to speak information and wisdom to you, but you have to weigh it out. Where do you go? Whose ears find your complaints first? (laughs) When I was the only Christian who worked in a car dealership filled with people who didn't believe as I believed, I had to be very careful about who I vented to when I had a bad day because they were all looking at my life to see how I handled bad days. And even when I had one, I had to be careful about how I expressed it because I didn't want them to lower their view of myself or of my God by me losing it. And I felt that pressure. And some of you live and work in those environments. Just you have to be aware of those things. Do you seek the company of a habit or a hobby? When you have a bad day, where do you turn? I know a lot of people who are trying to find freedom from life-controlling addictions and illnesses. And they know that here's where they're torn, people who are really stuck here. And I was there for a while. I wanted to give up my addiction to this particular prescription medicine. I wanted to give it up, but I kind of didn't. I wanted to be free from it, but I wanted to know that at any point, if I had a really bad day, I could take that pill, and in 15 minutes, I'd feel better. And a lot of people are stuck there because they started making a habit that when they're nervous, when they're stressed, they turn to a habit, they turn to a hobby, and then they they form this codependent relationship with it. Where do you turn for company? Do you turn to people weaker than you, or do you turn to those who are found near the cross of Christ? Do you turn to people who not only have your best interests at heart, but believe as you believe, make themselves available to you? Guys, that's why we give you connect cards. At least it gives you, some of you are not writers, and I realize you'll never use a connect card, but many of you, it's giving you one opportunity. If you've got something going on in your life, I want to know. It gives you an opportunity to write a sentence or two sentences. Let me pray with you. Let me follow the Lord's leading and follow up with you. That's why we have small groups at Echo. Because it gives you another connect point that you know at least on Thursday night or Tuesday night, if I'm having a really bad week, I don't have to wait till Sunday to see somebody. I can go Thursday to a house right in my neighborhood, be around other people who love me, who believe as I do. And if there's something going on in my life, they're going to pick up on it. I'm going to find company and strength to get through this. That's why we have stuff like that. That's why we have church on Sundays. So that if you can't get to one of those places, you can at least come to a place on a Sunday morning where you can be around other people who can encourage you and inspire you and keep you moving forward. That's how we stay connected. That's why we do some of the things we do. We're not just having small groups to cross off the list of stuff we think we should do. We don't just have church because we think it's a great thing to do on Sunday morning. We do it because it's part of the the organism that God gave us to be with one another and help one another through the difficult times of life. Last question I have is, through what lens do you view life's realities? Do you look at it through the lens of what's fair? You get bent out of shape because that's unfair. Do you look at it through the lens of what's right? I'm upset. Why? Because something happened to me that was not right. Okay. You should be mad. But guess what? That's part of the reality of life. Are you looking at it through those lens or do you look at it through the lens of Christ? Do you look at it from how he stands? That's not necessarily about what's fair or whether you've done right or whether you can even understand it all or what's God doing through all of it. I don't know if you've ever... <laughs> When I grew up in church, worship was very different than it is today. We didn't have all this cool stuff. Okay, we didn't have, did not have projection screens. Like it was real cutting edge in the church that I went to. At one point, we got these overhead projectors. You remember those? And it had this little scroll thing on the side, and you could get these dry erase markers, and someone would handwrite the words to everything up on the screen. But even before that, we had these ancient antique things called hymnals. Have you ever heard of something called a hymnal? Okay. We had hymnals. 
and there was a period in my life where, especially when I was going to Bible college, there was this big debate. If you wanted to be this cutting-edge, relevant church, we were going to get rid of all the hymnals, and we were going to go to just songs, and we'd project them up here. And, it, and you know, that's fine. But you know, there's some really great hymns that we don't sing about anymore. This is not a political statement. It's just part of how I grew up. And there's a lot of hymns, too, that absolutely had nothing, nothing, there's no theological value in them whatsoever. Like I love, like, um, like Away in a Manger is in the hymn book. You mean to tell me Jesus didn't cry? He was a baby. And they're like, no, no crying he made. No, I bet he cried. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's other hymns in there that they're like, they're really cool hymns. I'm like, I don't know what verse of the Bible they took that from, but it sounds great. You know, so I'm, I'm not painting with a broad brush, but there's some that just spoke great theology that are so special to me. And there's one I wanted to read to you this morning as we close that I remember from growing up. I won't sing it to you. That would not honor the Holy Spirit at all. But I want to read it to you because this story reminds me. It was written by Francis J. Crosby. And it's called Near the Cross. And it really just summarizes why I need to stay near the cross. Let me read it to you. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all. I love that phrase. Free to all. A healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Second verse. And this is where I read myself into the hymn. Near the cross, a trembling soul. Love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. It's kind of the series we're doing. Help me walk from day to day with its, meaning the cross's, shadows over me. Near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river and then the chorus, in the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Until the day my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. It just reminds me why I need to stay close to the cross of Christ. If I can keep the memory of what Jesus did there alive in my mind, I will live differently. I'll make decisions differently. I'll view all of my worst days a little bit differently. I will find love and mercy surrounding me if I can stay near the cross. So how do I stay near the cross, Pastor? What does that look like? Is it like a place? Is it a geographic point on a map? No, staying near the cross is not a geographic location. It's a location in your heart and in your mind. Staying near the cross means staying near to worship because that's where we find Jesus' presence. Staying near the cross means staring, staying near to the, to the Bible, to God's written word for me because that's where I discovered Jesus and I closed the distance between he and I. Staying near the cross means staying near to prayer because that's where we hear from Jesus and we talk to Jesus. Staying near the cross means staying near to a church where your friends and your family are because that's where we find company and strength to face life's harshest reality. Staying near the cross isn't about a geographical point. It's not about hanging a picture in your house. It's about staying close to worship, staying close to the word, staying close to prayer, staying close to your church, staying close to the people who can carry you through things. You may feel near or far from the cross this morning, but I want to make an invitation. No matter how far from the cross you are, you, there's always room for you right in front of the cross, right where Jesus is. Can I pray over you this morning? Will you bow your heads with me? If you've never made a decision to accept Jesus into your life, you've never surrendered your life to Him, you've never confessed your sins to Him, you've never made a commitment to, to follow after Him, to kind of where we get our name from, to echo Him in life, 
and in your words and in your actions. I want to invite you to make that decision this morning. You might feel, Pastor, I am so messed up. If you knew what was going on in my life today, you would not invite me to come near the cross. I've got a lot of things I need to clean up. I've got these habits. I've got these issues. I just, I have a lot of work to do before that I get my life right with Jesus. Friend, can I just correct that for a second? Jesus knows all that stuff already, and you don't have to clean up a thing. In fact, you can't unless you come to him first. Beautiful thing is, you come to Jesus first, then he'll help you clean up all that other stuff in an order of his choosing. So if you're here today, and you want to make that decision to live for Jesus, or maybe you say, you know what, I have made a decision to follow Jesus, Pastor. I did. At some point in my life, I did. But I'm not really, <laughs> I'm no longer near the cross. Maybe today's a day where you... <laughs> You want to get a clean, fresh start with Jesus. And you want to make a step to move back in the right direction with God. You can join in with a prayer just like the one I prayed when I asked Jesus into my life. Sounds like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've disappointed you. I've done life my own way. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I make no excuses for the decisions I made up to this point. But Jesus, I do want to draw near to the cross. I want to be near to where you are. I want to close the distance between us. So I make a decision today to confess my sins, confess my need of you. I recognize I need saving, and I, so I need someone to do it, and I can't save myself. So I, I want you to be my Savior. I make a decision today to surrender my life to you. That means I'm going to make decisions not as I see best, but as you see best. I'm not going to live life the way that I think it should be lived. I'm going to echo your life, Jesus. If it was the way that you thought or the way that you treated people, the way you made decisions, the way that you talked, the way you interacted with God, the way you interacted with your friends, the way you interacted with your enemies, that's the way that I want to live. I make that commitment to surrender my life to you this morning. In your precious name I pray.